the high point of our worship will occur after the message when we come to the table of the Lord and remember Jesus with the bread and the cup. And then after that, another time of worship where we can give our hearts freely to Jesus for what he's done for us. So I invite you to begin preparing for that time even now. Christianity claims a unique place among the world's religions. It tells of a God before whom courageous saints bow down, trembling. They take their sandals off. They fall on their face, and they repent in sackcloth and ashes. But at the same time, it tells of a God who came to us as a baby, who was tender towards children and the weak, who taught and invited us to call him Abba, God who loved and is loved. And this God, this God whom the theologians call transcendent, far above, but at the same time imminent, close within, this God inspires unique, distinctive worship over the last three millenniums and continues to this very moment. It's interesting that the primary word for worship in the First Testament is the word bow down. And the primary word for worship in the Second Testament is the word kiss, the kiss of fellowship. And then in the middle of it all, there's some dancing. It's appropriate today that the final installment of our Songs for the Road series is about worship. In fact, Psalm 122, which you've just heard read, was written by David, and he's recounting his experience of going with his community to Jerusalem for one of the great worship festivals. And so from David's worship experience, we will learn the three purposes of worship. Let me give them to you so that you can track along with the message today. The first purpose of worship is to encounter God. The second purpose of worship is to experience growth. And the third purpose of worship is to rehearse the gospel. There you have it, Trinity worship, three Gs, God, growth, and gospel. Let's begin. If we look at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 122, David writes, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are now standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Two things stand out as you look at this psalm start to finish. The first is this is a psalm that's about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, and, and specifically what's in Jerusalem. In the first verse and the last verse, it says the house of the Lord. Now, we all have our hometowns. We all may have grown up in a place and our heartstrings are attached to that place. But that doesn't really mean what to a Jew Jerusalem means. You see, in Jerusalem, it wasn't just that you were born there. It wasn't just that you lived there. It wasn't just that you visited there. When it says Jerusalem, it means God lives there. There's no other place like it because God's there. And that leads to the second thing you notice about this song. Not only is it about Jerusalem because the house of God's there, but because God's there, the song is throbbing with joy. Jubilation. In fact, I, I, I would contend this word rejoice is a little too tame. It literally means like elation, enthusiasm, anticipation, 
You cannot wait to get there. And when you're there, you let loose. It is joy. It links back to the very first time that David entered Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant and established Jerusalem as the Jewish capital politically and religiously. Do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? This symbol of God's presence? First thing that was in there was Aaron's staff. You remember that staff touched the Red Sea, parted it, and they crossed on dry land. That staff touched rivers and turned them to blood. That staff, it led Egypt or Israel out of Egypt under the cover of darkness, protected by the blood of the Lamb from the angel of death. That staff is symbolic of God's radical deliverance. And then in the ark was a jar of manna because of God's daily provision. Even when it looks like you're not going to make it, God steps in brings bread to the desert. And the other thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, which is God's constant voice, his guidance, his boundaries, his assurance of presence. And so if this is the God of radical deliverance, if this is the God of daily provision, if this is the God of constant voice, the last thing worship can be is half-hearted. So, look what David does. He's like a boy whose father comes home. In in 2 Samuel 6, wearing a linen ephod. Now, we won't talk much about that because it literally means David was wearing almost nothing. Moving right along. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. That word dancing, I I can demonstrate it. Are you ready? Whirling. It means whirling. Now I know what you're thinking, Larry. Oh, oh no, geez. You're going to now say that we need to start dancing more in our worship, maybe whirling. First of all, I've seen some of you dance, so um, no, I'm not going to say that. God's already said that. Psalm 150, verse 4, in the imperative commanding tense, praise the Lord with tambourine and David world. Yeah, I have seen some of you dance. I've watched Bronco games with you. I've seen you dance. You know, I hesitate to admit this in a church with Baptist roots, but there used to be a lot of whirling in our house. I'd come home from work, I'd holler, hello! And around the corner would come running these two little blonde-haired boys with their arms up and four teeth showing, and I'd catch them up, and you know what we'd do? We'd whirl! I've seen some of you dance. What does that dance look like for you? Well, you know, sometimes I'll come home today, and Jan, my wife, will say, Larry, 
I think it's great how you get up there and belch out all this philosophical gas about the mysteries of <laughs> divinity. But I, what I'd really like to see from you is to clean the bathrooms <laughs> and get me out on a date and a worship service is like a date with Jesus. And you prepare, and you anticipate, and you get your heart full, and you're certainly not late, and you're ready to roll. What does that look like for you? I can't script it for you. What I do know from reading the scriptures, it's that sometimes it should look like this. It looked like this for me a couple of times with Jan when I was really serious. And I know that sometimes it should look like this. Because Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy and said, I desire that holy men and women of God everywhere lift their hands in prayer. So by the way, you old fogies who get annoyed with people raising their hands, let me tell you something. Because Paul wrote it to the original church, this is traditional worship. This is contemporary worship. Come on, do it with me. Traditional, contemporary, old folks worship, Young folks worship. I know that sometimes it should sound like this. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. You know, Psalm 122, still today in the Christian calendar, is sung on the first Sunday of Advent because it's a way of welcoming in the King. Sometimes you sing, and sometimes you sing with tears because joy is not the opposite of tears. Joy is actually deepened in tears because joy means you have this conviction that nothing that happens to you here is the last word. The last word on your life is resurrection. So you sing even in tears, even on the worst day of your life, you sing because you know the last word is resurrection. And sometimes it looks like this, where you just sit. You can't stand, you can't sing, you just sit still and quiet before the cross. And you try to gather yourself and just make sense of things, and you just sit, and you're still. And even then, you're not alone. David danced before the Lord. The first purpose of worship is to encounter God and give him your dance. Make him your treasure. The second purpose of worship is rather interesting as David waxes poetic. He says in verses 3 through 5 that worship is an experience of growth, and there's pictures that describe it. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. The walk into the ancient city was a dramatic experience because you would walk up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had two sloping valleys off to its side, so it was almost as if God himself was elevating the city so that you could see the buildings. And as David looks at those buildings, he notices there's not a stone out of place. There's no awkward gap 
maps, all the lines are straight. And what he's trying to communicate is that going to worship is what makes your life stable and steady. Worship builds believers. And so we worship to come to get our head screwed on right. We come to worship to remember the frame through which we look at life, because life is crazy outside these doors. Would you agree? It's just crazy. We come and we refocus. Oh, this is the story that we're in. Oh, this is where our history ends. Oh, this is what we should be doing. Oh, these are our priorities. We come to worship to get our head back and our heart set on the right things and in the right place. Worship builds us. But it, it builds us not only by giving us a framework, it builds us, this is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statue given to Israel. Worship creates this unique experience where we all come from different backgrounds and become one people. What's interesting about Jerusalem is that when David chose it to be the spiritual and political capital of Israel, the, the land itself did not belong to any of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was land given to David as, as a, a people group called the Jebusites submitted to David and his power. The land was taken by David, and David chose that land that didn't belong to any other tribe to make as his capital, which is rather interesting because you leave everything, you know, all your identity behind you when you come into the presence of the God. The only thing that matters is that you're the people of God your ethnic background, your socioeconomic status, your skills and experience, they don't divide. You come together bringing all of them and you become one people. We always harp on this quite a bit at Waterstone. I'm sure other churches do as well. We remind you that Christianity and being in the church, it's a very personal experience. Yes, it's the relationship with God can be very intimate, but private, never. The moment you decide to become a follower of Jesus, you take on brothers and sisters, and you are responsible for serving them and helping them become their future glory self now. That's why we connect worship with our small groups. We ask every attender at Waterstone, if you call this your church home, we're asking you to become part of a small group. Why? Not because you'll get good things out of it, though we hope you do. We ask you because your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to carry around a basin and a towel and wash the feet of other believers. You are to be a priest to other people. You are to be an experience of God for other people with the kind words that you share, sometimes the challenges that you give. You are to be part of a small group, not to get, but to give. And that builds believers. And so we, we get the right framework. We enter a laboratory of love where we learn to love. And then lastly, worship builds us. There stands the thrones for judgment, thrones of the house of David. Thrones is a place where decrees and edicts are delivered by the one who has power to back them up, the king. And this word judgment is one of the rich words of Hebrew. It's the word mispot, which literally means the decisive word of God that straightens things out and puts things right. Straightens things out and puts things right. Remember when Jesus first came to us, when his ministry began, he went around preaching this. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, 
his rule, his throne, his reign, Jesus has now entered our world to straighten things out and put things right. And now that he's going back to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he sent his spirit to live in us, we're as partners. And what's our role? Our role is in Jesus' name to straighten things out and put things right by loving and serving others. We are now the ministers of Mispat. That's what we do. So we're reminded in worship that we get the right framework, we get a laboratory of love, and we get mission. We are the ministers of Mishpat, of justice. That answers the question of why we worship. Have you ever been asked this question? I've been asked a number of times, and I've certainly read a lot of things where our uh, evangelist atheists are asking this question a lot. Why do you go to worship and sing all these praises to God? Doesn't he know how great he is? I mean, why does he need a planet full of autograph seekers wanting to hear, you're great, you're great, you're great? How big is his ego? You ever thought that? You ever been asked that? Here's how I would answer. There's a logic to worship. And let me see if I can walk through the logic and then we'll land to answer the question of why worship. Here's the logic. Glory, beauty, holiness, awesomeness, demands a response. So that when you go down to the Denver Art Museum, you find out where the only Van Gogh is in that museum, you stand there before it and you think, wow, that's beautiful. And then you begin to heap words of praise on the artist. What vision Van Gogh had? What skill, what amazing talent. It's so sad that he died at 37, so sad. Would those comments be out of place? What do we mean when we say a painting deserves an audience? We mean that if you stood there and you did nothing and you said nothing, you're acting like a loser. Glory demands a response. In fact, I would argue that that experience of beauty is not complete until you've responded, until you've told someone. When is a movie experience complete? When you tell someone about how great the movie yesterday is and you imagine a world without the Beatles. Uh, when, when is a meal complete? It's complete when you tell somebody and recommend that restaurant or go on Yelp. When is a joke complete? You want to hear my new knock-knock joke? Say knock-knock. Who's there? <laughs> it works every time. complete when you tell it. Glory demands a response. Second line, we are wired to give response. We are made in God's image, which means we have the capacity mentally and emotionally to respond to beauty and say what needs said. Wow. When we see the mountains when we see the ocean and coasts of Maine, when we see sunsets that take our breath away because they're bronco colors. I mean, we are wired for wow. You, you ever heard that old story about the pastor who was becoming addicted to golf? And it got so bad that one morning he called into his church sick and he went out and played around the golf. 
Well, that got the attention of the heavenly father and the apostle Peter. And the apostle Peter says, Father, are, are you seeing this? And the father says, yeah, I got it. So the pastor goes out, plays through 17 holes, and he's playing the first round under par in his life. Not only that, he gets to the 18th hole, three par, smashes the drive, bounce, bounce, plunk, hole in one. Peter says, Father, I thought you were going to do something. And the father says, I did. Who's he going to tell? <laughs> Glory demands a response. We are wired to give the response. And then the logic goes one step further. The greater the glory of the object, the more delightful the response. And who are we talking about here? We are talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God become flesh, who with the exercise of his vocal cords could change weather patterns, who with his hands could play on the energy matter equation and feed a crowd of 20,000 by five loaves of bread and two fish, a man who could call people by name out of their grave, and then a man who came with the love of the Father in his heart and wanting family, he laid his life down so that you and I could become family. The greatest tragedy and injustice in this world is that Jesus Christ goes unnoticed. That's what happened the last time Jesus walked into Jerusalem. And do you remember some followers recognized him and they began throwing their cloaks down in front of him and they began shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus passes them, whoa, 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 that's blasphemy. Tell your disciples to stop, get control. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if they weren't in this moment praising me, the rocks would cry out. Which means that the greatest danger to this planet is not the presence of a nuclear arsenal, but the absence of worship. We worship because we need it. God does not need our worship. We need to worship. So worship is an encounter with God where we bring treasuring hearts before him. Worship is an experience of growth where we, with praising hearts, do what we were made to do. And lastly, worship is a rehearsal of the gospel. We see it in verses 6 through 9. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls. David's concern here is for Jerusalem, specifically that it continues to be a place that gives security. The word means rest, free from anxiety, stillness, soul-settledness. Rest, and may there be, you've heard this word, shalom, wholeness, God's completed will in you. David prays for Jerusalem that it would continue to be a source of peace and rest. What's interesting is the great poetry in this, in that the Hebrew words shalom and shelva, are, those consonants are all within the word of Jerusalem. It's amazing, the gift of language here. The idea is that from Jerusalem, because God is there, 
That's where we find peace and rest. Now, in this age, we know that God no longer lives in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. That, 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 that God's presence is no longer localized, but actually it now lives in us. It's not a building, it's not a place, it's a people. We are the house of the Lord. We are the place where his spirit dwells. We are. And that's why today the application would be pray for the church, that we would continue to be a place that points to Jesus who gives peace and rest. I, I just want to point this out, that Jesus himself started this transition when he said to the women in the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And so... As we gather and worship, we're reminded that each week we rehearse the gospel. The gospel means that Jesus gives peace and rest. And we tell everyone we know as witnesses that Jesus gives peace and rest. And so you may have noticed this about our worship. It's, there's been some subtle changes that Billy and the worship planning team have been working on. And one of these things we've really been working hard at is that every week, the entire service is a rehearsal of the gospel. We start out with creation and bowing down and saying, God made us. We owe everything to him. And then we move to the part of the service where we have confession or where we acknowledge we've broken it. We've messed up. And then from there, we, we, we acknowledge, but Jesus came. And we have communion or we hear the, the gospel preached that says, Jesus saves. And then from there we say, and it's not over because as we send you out, you are now going out as a minister of mispot, of justice. And you are to lift the valleys and smooth the mountains. And you are the carriers of God's peace and rest. So leave in peace and rest. So every week we're telling this story. Why? Because tomorrow some of you may get a call from your kid who says to you, Dad, I screwed up again. I messed up big this time. How are you going to respond? We hope that you respond because you've rehearsed the gospel the day before. Let's confess this. Let's figure out what happened. Let's redeem it. Jesus will help us and we'll redeem it and good will come out of this. And then this isn't the last word on your life, nor will it define your existence. Because you've rehearsed the gospel week by week. You live the gospel day by day. That's what we're doing here. What is that gospel? Let me tell it to you in a minute. God made us for himself with complete, intimate, face-to-face -face fellowship and harmony with his creation. But we decided that was not enough. We wanted to be like God. We wanted to control our own lives, and so we turned from him. And in that moment, 
we gained a disobedient nature and we broke everything. And it explains the mess in which we live. But Jesus came. God sent his own son to live the life we should have lived so that we can be declared righteous and to die the death we should have died so that we'd be forgiven of all our sins. And then, having turned to him and become a follower of Jesus, we now become ministers of his gospel to the world. We are the walking previews of what's to come, and we show people the kingdom now. That's the gospel. We share it to get people home. And where's our home? (laughs) It's called the New Jerusalem. John describes it for us when he writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You know that everything God loves becomes beautiful. You know that God does not love you because you're good looking. You know that God does not love you because you're a good person. Do you know that God does not love you because you've done good things? God loves you. No matter what you've done in your past, he could not love you any less. No matter what you would do in your future, he could not love you any more. God loves you because he chooses to love you. And what he loves becomes beautiful. Paul Hebert, he's in heaven now, waiting the new Jerusalem. But he took care of his wife while he lived, both of them deep into their 90s. Alzheimer's robbed his wife of her uh, mental capacities. And in her 90s, she was, as he described it, shrunken and shriveled. But he would visit her every day, and every hour he set his watch to kiss her. Once every hour, as he sat with her. He wrote once in in a memoir, he said, I, I don't now love my wife because she's beautiful. She's beautiful now because I love her. And that is how God loves us. I don't know all of you. I don't know why you've come this morning. But I want to plead with you to believe the gospel. God has chosen to be crazy in love with you. He has moved heaven and earth to get you here to hear his good news. He has made nations rise and fall to put you in these seats. He sent his own son to bring you this news and secure a place for you in heaven. You are of invaluable worth to him. And he's waiting for you now at the marriage reception. When we enter the new Jerusalem, he's waiting for you. But he says to you now, now I want you to hold me. I want you to hold me like that little baby that came in the manger. I want you to hold me as the homeless man dead now who died for you. 
I, I, I want you to hold the bread which represents my body broken for you. I want you to hold the cup which represents my blood shed for you. And, and I want you to hold me at that marriage reception when I'm sitting at the head of the table, King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to come and I want you to embrace me. And oh, guess what? I predict you'll do three things in that moment. You will bow down. You will stand up and receive the kiss of fellowship. And then you will dance. But why wait? Why wouldn't you hold him now? So I call you to the table of the Lord. As our servers get in place, as the praise team comes, I call you to come and hold Jesus. Let me just explain a couple of things quickly. First, we invite anyone who loves Jesus, and whether this would be your first time or you've done it 1,600 times, come with full hearts, clear eyes, what you're doing, and be with Jesus and hold him to your heart. Come and treasure him. And by the way, you may, if you're relatively new to Waterstone, notice that when we do communion, it's chaos. And we say to that, by design. <laughs> Communion sh it should be a mess. Why? Because we're a mess. Because the family's a mess. And so, don't just stand there and bump into each other. Embrace each other. Talk to one another. We're going to be singing during communion this time. So sing. Look each other in the eye. Clear eyes. Full hearts. Come to the messy table. That's Jesus' table. We invite you to tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, gluten-free in the back, and take it anywhere in the room. Come and hold Jesus to your heart today. Here's the invitation. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. He said, this bread represents my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, the forgiveness of sins poured out in a new covenant. As often as you drink it, remember me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come back. Come.